Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Welcome back and a special shout out to DM Girl and LPMR for the nice reviews on Apple Podcast and also to EU David for the kind words on Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. We love the attention, but also your reviews, ratings, and smashings of the subscribe button help other people find us. So thanks also for spreading the word and creating more hashtag hornheads. 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 Seriously, that's what you want. Well, every fan base needs a name. Okay, Klaus, do you have any better ideas? Uh, Heptacephalids? Deca... Heritids? Uh Please stop. <laughs> no, I do not. <laughs> and uh, clearly none of those are going to work. But, you know, maybe our listeners have some ideas. So if they are so inclined, which God pity them, they can tweet us at heads underscore 10 and they can mock us for fishing for fan name categories or whatever. Or they can just also tell us to stop doing that. I think we earned, yeah, whatever mockery that is coming to us at this point. So this week, we are taking on everyone's favorite martyrs, the North Africans, Perpetua and Felicity. Woo! Woo! Uh, fun fact, uh, Augustine, St. Augustine um, made a pun about their perpetual felicity in a sermon, which is great because now I don't have to take credit for that pun. Well, now it's clear why fellow North African Augustine accepted ordination to the priesthood and why he was crying through the entire ordination ceremony. His dreams of making it in stand-up comedy were being dashed. With puns like that, who needs enemies? Or is it? With puns like that, you make a lot of enemies. Wow, so this is the last time I'm letting you uh, write the rundown for this show. I think, I think uh, it's, it's, everything's going out of control. <laughs> Wait, so you'll do all the hard work? Twist my arm, Klaus. So once upon a time, my dad went camping with some friends. No one wanted to cook the meals, but especially this one guy who, to everyone's surprise, volunteered to cook the first night. He made oyster pie. Mm. I think there were canned oysters. God knows what else. Anyway, the other campers unanimously exempted him from ever cooking again. Oh, I think you're trying to say something there. Man, what a what a generous person you are with these comparisons. Generous or just terribly clever? Or both? One of those. <laughs> okay. All right. So, so once upon a time, like on or about March 7th, 203 of the Common Era, some games were held in honor of the Roman Caesar Geta's birthday in Carthage in the Roman province of North Africa. And yes, there was a Roman Caesar called Geta, which I think is a really great name. Just get a clue, bro. (laughs) Like, get it, get get a clue, yeah. A bunch of people were put to death at these games, including, you guessed it. Perpetua and Felicity. Yes, so Klaus, tell us what little we know about Perpetua and Felicity. Okay, so I think the narrative of the martyrdom is itself the most reliable source we have. Felicity was an enslaved woman who was pregnant at the time of her arrest and who gave birth in prison shortly before her execution in the arena in Carthage. 
Divya Perpetua was an upper-class, educated married woman who spoke both Latin and Greek, and also wrote a good portion of the Passion itself, along with Satirists, another of the small group of martyrs, and a redactor who added a fancy intro and conclusion. I like the intro as a part about uh, the spirit being poured forth on a younger generation from Joel, and it's sort of oh, right? it's messianic, like... eschatological, it's, it's kind of cool. Um, Anyway, the plot goes something like this. A small group of Christians, likely belonging to the same house church in Carthage, were arrested for being Christians. Um, at least I guess that's how it, it frames it. They, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't do the sacrifice thing to the emperor or something, right? Right, um, right. And there was a close yeah. link between the refusal to do the sacrifice and the saying, you know, the, the claim of being a Christian, although it wasn't absolute. There were definitely people who were like, I'm a Christian and also I'm going to hightail it out of here, or I'm a Christian and I'm going to just go ahead and make the sacrifice. Right, which just involved throwing a few grains of incense like on a, a fire, right? And say, saying a formula. But at the, still, at the risk of your eternal soul, Klaus. Right, you know, right but this guy, you know, um, you know, hashtag demonarchy, you know, this guy was a, the, the, the Roman emperor as presented as a god was, you know, sort of a classic example. Going back to Justin Martyr, our boy Justin Martyr, uh, <laughs> as an example of like a demonized, uh, you know, pagan ruler or something. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So anyway, uh, there was probably, this was like a local persecution as opposed to some of the more famous imperial-wide, empire-wide persecutions that, that later gripped the Roman Empire. Um, and towards the beginning, Perpetua's dad tries to talk her out of getting martyred a couple different times. Um, and, and, you know, people come and they're, they're jeering at the, the would-be, about-to-be martyrs and, and trials and, and different official ceremonies and stuff. And Satyrus and Perpetua each have visions, which they record, one about Perpetua's dead brother, and the other two about getting martyred. Then the redactor, the, the editor, takes over the story of their demises in the arena and sings their praises for being so brave and godly and stuff. Wow, Klaus, how did you manage to make such an exciting story so boring? Oh, wait, I wrote that part. Okay. Oh, damn. So, yeah. uh, how did I do that then? Well, you left out all the voyeuristic parts. No nudity, no lurid details of exposed flesh and baptisms in blood. Okay, so that is a great transition to my mentioning to our audience that this episode includes all sorts of wonderful details like that. So if you're, you know, in the car and you have small children listening, this might be a great time to kind of wind it down and maybe choose something else. So it also reminds me of a show I was watching recently on Netflix that has, you know, all these newfangled maturity ratings for sex, language, smoking, drugs, nudity. I mean, you name it. It seems like these warnings are getting so specific now. Klaus, if you had to come up with the warnings for uh, this sort of episode, the rest of this episode, or rather for the uh, the passion itself, or people about to read it, what would you say that people need to watch out for? Advisory for overly symbolic dream sequences, low-key religio emo porn, unsurprising association of Egyptian man with the role of the villain, cheesy allusion to Euripides, oh yeah, and voyeuristic erotically charged violence. Listener discretion is advised. Dun dun dun.
Okay, so with that, let's dive into our favorite moments from the text. I call this scene, but dad, think like 90s sitcom complete with laugh track. I'll be Perpetua and Klaus will play her, I think nameless dad. Anyway, we'll play her father. Okay. See that vase over there? It's a vase. Can you call it by any other name, dad? Nope. In the same way, I am unable to call myself anything but what I am, a Christian. Dad tries to gouge out Perpetua's eyes. But my dad only alarmed me, and he left defeated, along with the arguments of the devil. Yeah, take yourself on home with those stupid arguments, devil. Get behind me. Anyway, uh, Thomas Hefferman, Heffernan, who put together a scholarly edition of the text with translation and commentary, links this devil reference to the linguistics conversation that precedes it, this sort of semiotics thing, you know, sign, signifier, signified. Wow, yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's graduate school nostalgia or trauma coming back in when we start getting into the abstract linguistic stuff, but here we are. It's, it's always yeah. both, Klaus. It's always yeah. both. A vase is a vase. So what we what we mean here when we're talking about semiotics and this part of the conversation is, you know, a vase is a vase. A Christian is a Christian. A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Uh, the link here is to the arguments of the devil. Just as a Christian is a Christian, so arguments that are diabolical are, you guessed it, diabolical. This is all starting to sound rather circular, Klaus. I think the idea is that if dad's arguments, nameless father, portrayed by Klaus Yoder, is one that tempts his daughter to sin, then we can't call it anything but diabolical. His argument is from the devil because it is tempting her away from martyrdom and salvation. Sure, sure. Perpetua seems to lack nuance here to my way of thinking. It's, it's a rather black and white way of seeing the situation. But, you know, if you're pumping yourself up for martyrdom, I suppose this could be quite helpful. It also seems right in line with her identification as a Christian. Christiana Sum and whatnot. I am a Christian. So what do you think about this move, Klaus? Yeah, it strikes me as like this really um, uh, kind of identitarian, ontologizing move to say that it's not about uh, taking responsibility for uh, making a kind of vow or showing deference to the emperor. It's not about any personal choices. It's about this basic claim of identity and existence. Um, And so it seems like that's, it's that sort of uh, identitarian shift that is putting this whole thing in relation to the devil. Um, So yeah, it it reminds me of a little bit of what the sort of the the Gnostics would sort of talk about. Um, The Gnostics is a kind of race or Justin Martyr would talk about Christians as a kind of race vis-a-vis Jews and, and pagans. Hey, Klaus, did you ever play shoots and ladders growing up? Not in any way that's extremely memorable. Why do you ask? Well, apparently it was originally an Indian board game called Moksha Patam. It's a board game played with dice and it features ladders and snakes. So the ladders are associated with virtues and the snakes are associated with vices. The ladders allow you to skip ahead as you race your opponent to Moksha or enlightenment while the snakes make you fall behind. I'm sorry, but why are we talking about an Indian board game? (laughs) Well, Perpetua has a dream, sort of vaguely reminiscent of Jacob's Ladder, if you know that from the book of Genesis, in which a bronze ladder 
stretches up to heaven, but on either side of the ladder are swords, lances, hooks, and knives. And here, I'm not describing Jacob's ladder. I'm describing Perpetua's dream, to be clear. At the foot of the ladder is a great serpent. Satyrus beckons Perpetua to climb the ladder, but mind the snake. <laughs> mind mind the gap. Declares, <laughs> mind the gap, exactly. Uh, mind the dragon, mind yeah. the snake. She declares that in the name of Jesus Christ, the snake will not hurt her, and she steps right on its head as if it were the first step of the ladder. At the top of the ladder, she finds a huge garden and a white-haired man dressed as a shepherd milking sheep, along with a crowd of thousands of people all dressed in white. The shepherd hands her cheese, because of course, which she receives in her cupped hands and proceeds to eat, and everyone says, Amen. And then she wakes up. Yeah, I had a dream just like that last night. No, it's a really weird dream. <laughs> right? Yes. It is a very weird dream. But I love the cheese part because I do I do feel that cheese should feature in more people's dreams. Yeah, I mean, I've never had cheese instead of bread at, for a Eucharistic celebration. But, I, you know, I think that would be cool. Um, but, yeah, so we have this, this serpent featuring prominently... Um, the association to the serpent in Genesis seems to be shouting out, but maybe that's because we're pre-inclined to, predisposed to see that connection. But anyway, yeah, I mean, uh, there's this part in Genesis where God addresses the serpent and says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So, Travis, what's the standard Christian reading of this text? Why does the crushing of the serpent's head wind up here and didn't we already talk about this in episode one, the classic? Well, I mean, truly that was a classic, but I have no idea how you remember any details from it. I can hardly <laughs> remember the beginning of this episode, and we're not even done recording it. But anyway, there's a messianic reading of this text that says that the kind of crusher of the serpent, that is the offspring of the woman, is Christ so the woman here is often identified not so much with Eve, which would seem the most obvious choice, but Mary. And here, however, it's clearly the martyr Perpetua who gets the, do the job done, this crushing of the serpent's head. Of course, to be clear, the Latin draco is an ambiguous word that can mean not just snake, but also dragon. So we also get shades of the beasts from the book of Revelation that you remember so clearly from our three episode series on revelation also a classic the trilogy the revelation um, trilogy yeah not to be missed the trilogy yet. <laughs> really mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or it could be a leviathan reference you know that sort of thing and i do appreciate that how heffernan whom we mentioned earlier notes that this vision is not so much about the individual salvation of the hero although i do think that that's present but it's more about the group salvation of the martyrs which is interesting in how the cult of the martyrs is sort of built up later. But you have Perpetua, who's not there by herself, but Satyrus is there kind of encouraging her, and there are the thousands waiting for her in heaven. Yeah, it reminds me of, of recent discussion of salvation in, in Paul, in Paul's letters, where it's, it's not this sort of really individualistic thing, but it's about groups being saved, groups being justified, and so on and so forth. So yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. But it also sounds to me like you're you're beefing with our evangelical friends who might be really into that kind of individual salvation thing. So do you have a personal relationship with Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Travis? <laughs> I feel like these same evangelical friends would be horrified by some of the mystics I study, Klaus, who were definitely erotically into Jesus. 
How's that for a personal relationship? What's also key is that the relationship is about to be taken to a whole new level. After explaining the dream to her brother, Perpetua is adamant. The dream's meaning is that there will be a passion. Ooh, that sounds hot. Well, maybe, I don't know. It's, it's more like the passion. Okay, that's a lot less hot, Klaus. Thanks a lot for that. <laughs> She's going to die. My God, she saw it coming. Decoded it from that wacky dream. I think you're right, though, to make that sort of an erotic connection, even though maybe uh, Good Friday is a lot less hot than some other kinds of passions we might want to talk about. But there's something ecstatic about this kind of passion because it's, it's bringing her closer to the divine bridegroom. And as... Uh, an international man of mystery and renowned with respect to the study of mystics. You probably know something about that. That sounds that sounds very familiar. But again, the grad school, it's both the delight and also the like the, the trauma that you're bringing up for me. So but before we get too breathless or anxious, there are some action movie scenes that we really need to sort through here, Klaus. Yeah, we should probably cue up that Dust Brothers soundtrack because we're watching Fight Club 2, more fight clubs or the attack of the fighting Egyptian. So <laughs> Perpetua has this vision of one of the deacons of her church, um, Pomponius, knocking on the door of the prison, summoning her to come do battle. He keeps reassuring her not to be afraid. He's there with her. It's like all this support. And this is a key thing from what I understand about martyr theory. Authentic martyrs can't freak out when they're being killed. They need to show this sort of superhuman poise as proof of their being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Or it doesn't count. <laughs> wow, this is way beyond like a stiff upper lip. We're talking like show no fear, look chipper even. That's, that's a tall order. Well, speaking of tall, in this dream, there's a very tall person. I'm picturing like the butler dude from the Black Lodge in Twin Peaks who explains the contest when Perpetua enters the arena. There won't be any beasts to maul and torture her, but instead she's opposed by someone my translation refers to as an ill-favored Egyptian. Terrifying. Don't make me ill-favored, Klaus. You wouldn't like me if I were to become ill-favored. Ah, so you're, you're like the Hulk. But instead of being some lab nerd, you're an Oxford Don. Okay, got it. Uh, but yeah, sorry, not sorry, we're not turning this into an MCU podcast, for God's sakes. Anyway, the rules of the contest, and it seems like the tall person is God, are there if the ill-favored Egyptian wins, he gets to kill Perpetua. If she wins, she gets the victory branch and the golden apples. Seems That's all, that's balanced, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but aren't you skipping over something, Klaus? Perpetua has help, remember? She's got some beautiful young men who take her side against the Egyptian. And at that very moment when she's getting rubbed down with oil, if I'm remembering right, mm. right, uh, that she realizes that she's become a man. It started raining men in this joint. <laughs> Jesus. She strips naked and it's like, Say hello to my new friend! <laughs> you know, I got a really big scar face energy there um wow, yes yes the, the fight is on and we get another example of the symbol we keep discussing the crushing of the head of the serpent perpetua describes herself himself their self in the dream as pulling off some tricky finger flicking wrestling moves throwing the egyptian to the ground 
And then she says, I trod upon his head. Boom. Ow, yeah, you're done. After she snaps out of the vision, she knows that they're not really fighting beasts in the arena, but the devil himself. Okay, well, there is a lot to sort through here. Uh, why, first of all, do you think the devil is an Egyptian in her vision? Yeah, I was thinking like Pharaoh, like from the book of Exodus. Mm-hmm. Uh, way back, we talked about Adam Kotzko in his book, The Prince of This World. And he argues that Pharaoh from Exodus the, you know, is this worldly tyrant and is the most uh, important prefiguration of the devil in the Hebrew Bible. Egypt often goes together with the flesh pots of Egypt, a symbol for the bad old days of bondage and moral depravity for the children of Israel. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly true, but it's definitely not the whole story when it comes to how early Christians would have thought about Egypt. Because remember, it's also a center of Christian thought at the time. You know, the Alexandrian school, which we can talk about more on a different episode, but it's also contested territory. Remember our episode on the burning down of the Library of Alexandria, the Temple of Serapis, and the mob lynching of Hypatia? And that's a couple of centuries down the line from what we're discussing today. Yeah, so I think, right, Egypt is complicated. We have this biblical symbolism. It's also this important place for the development of Christian theology. So um, I think you said you had read some parts where Egypt is being glossed as non-Christian or uh, or maybe standing in for Rome. Like, what do, what do you think about those things? Yeah. Yeah, let me, look, I'm not, I don't fully buy it, but some of it has to do with the animal imagery that comes up later. Um, So the calf that shows up in the text gets related back to the Egyptian and the cult of one of the Egyptian gods. And in that sense, the Egyptian becomes supposedly the symbol of uh, non-Christian religiosity and therefore of uh, the Mm -hmm. demonic, remember. These animal-human hybrids were often inspiration for, some scholars think, for the first images we get of Satan as having animal parts and human parts, which we see certainly in, in Western mm-hmm, Europe in the coming mm-hmm, mm-hmm. centuries. I, I like the idea. I would need to see more evidence to really be convinced. Yeah, yeah that, as with so many honest. things in the study of ancient Christianity and you know early Christianity, biblical adjacent stuff, uh, you get into the realm of the speculative pretty quickly when you're trying to make connections. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's like one thing, one piece of the puzzle. I mean, I made the the Scarface joke, but like, what should we think about this uh, this gender change that happens in the vision? Yeah, there. It's not entirely clear what should, we should make of it. It's a very complex image. I think first and foremost, though, we've got a kind of competition between interpretations of this story when it comes to gender. On the one hand, many people see this as, let's lift up this relatively rare text. It's written, at least in part, by a woman from the earliest centuries of Christianity. So there's a lot of attention that comes to it for that reason, because the vast majority of the texts from this time are authored by men. And so it's a rare opportunity to see a quote-unquote woman's perspective from this time. On the other hand, This complicates things because rather than our sort of what many, especially sort of second wave feminists might be looking for in this text, that is like a woman who embraces both her, I suppose, femininity um, or her identity as a woman that's unquestioned and her strength as a martyr, for example, 
that gets complicated in this vision where she seems to have to become a man to overcome her opponent. Her body is changed so that she's stronger, so that she can um, win the contest. And that has that results in some sort of scratchings of heads of the second wave folks. I have yet to see any more recent scholarship where queer theorists, queer uh, scholars of queer theory are sort of embracing this text with open arms either though. It seems like there might be potential for trans readings of this text that say, hey, look, here we've got an example of an early Christian hero who shows, at least in a vision, some sense of gender queerness, of ambiguity, of transness, if you will. And so can we rally around that? Uh, but I haven't seen anyone be able to kind of lift up all the parts of this text because, of course, it's quite yeah, complicated here. Yeah. I think also what what's interesting, too, is that when we get to the part, and we'll, we'll get there in a little bit, but um, when it is in Perpetua writing, because this vision that we've been describing uh, is written by Perpetua, um, as far as we know, uh, at the t- that's what the text says. Yeah. Um, and with her education level, it's, it's, it's very credible that it would have been. Um, but when it's being narrated by, because obviously she wasn't able to write down when she was being killed because she was busy doing other things. Um, you know, there is an outsider narrator, the redactor, the editor, whoever's writing the last sequence really plays up her femininity. And we'll, I guess we'll talk about that in a little bit. And we talk about the, the, the coup de exactly. um, but you know, where, where her mm-hmm. sort of, uh, her sort of sexuality and her and her like uh, chastity like sort of are really foregrounded so it, as a way of like sort of hushing up the 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 trans part in the vision. Yeah, I think that's actually an excellent sort of way to think about how the text, the different parts of the text, relate to each other, and whether maybe there was some uh, specific attention to and concern about the implications of this scene in particular. They get tidied up perhaps at the end. I like that a lot. Um, on the other hand, one of the, the other questions we might ask is, okay, but the, it's the whole text that gets preserved. So what does that say about the readership that comes later that says mm-hmm. we can hold both yeah. this, kind of, this kind of vision of becoming a man and the, oh, I guess, okay. One more comment I wanna make is about the scholarship that's been done on this dream, relating it to other early Christian texts and what they call androgyny. And what they mean by that are examples like from the Gospel of Thomas, where it seems clear that women have to, quote unquote, become men in order to enter the kingdom of heaven or, you know, fully become returned to God in heaven. And so I think that that does help us understand this part of the text but then i have questions about well what do we do with the end and the martyrdoms themselves which are so highly gendered i don't think that answers that part of the question but i do think that that helps provide some context here that we have biblical texts like from galatians uh chapter three that Mm -hmm. seem to point to well you you know neither jew nor greek slave nor free uh male and female but all are one in christ jesus I am mm-hmm. butchering that reference, but something like that. That sense, in other words, in an authentic Pauline letter, that there is some sort of parity or equality between uh, male and female Christians, that's held in tension with other parts of the corpus that seem to, you know, point to the patriarchy, point to 
uh, men as being more important in some ways than women in, in early Christianity. And so we might say, and that. even even with Paul's Paul's um, athletic metaphors for persevering, um, you might we might associate those with uh, sort of normy masculine activities of running the race and finishing the fight and stuff like that from Corinthians. Um, but there were Olympic athletic games for for female Greek athletes too. Um, so it's not just a necessarily a, a masculine reference. So I don't know what the status of um, women's sports was when Paul was writing, but. Um, at least in the original Olympic context. Wow. Uh, there were women, there were games for women. Well, that's actually very interesting and makes me wonder also about this, just, you know, a couple of centuries later, what's going on in North Africa at this time in terms of mm-hmm. games. Um, okay, because there seem to be references both in this dream, both to athletic competitions, but also to martyrdom, sort of that are overlapping here. Yeah, yeah, no, that's really interesting. Okay, um, before we transition into the, the final sequence of the Passion, I think it's worth mentioning that Perpetua's own voice ends with her description of this vision. And I like it's we it's like the last thing we hear from her. And I find that like strangely haunting. Yeah, I certainly. And it's also strange to consider how adamantly Perpetua asserts that they won't really be fighting animals in the arena, but the devil himself. So what do we make of that? Uh, And then when we're reading about the martyrdom sequence that we have in the words of the text by this editor, the devil prepared a wild cow for the young women, Perpetua and Felicity. And and the the wild cow here is is female in the Latin text. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, We don't usually think of cows as the fearsome beasts that unfortunate souls have to battle in the Roman arenas. The other guys, uh, Revocatus, I guess we'll say, and Saturnus, get dispatched by more traditional bears and leopards. Um, You know, lions and tigers and bears, oh my, you know. Klaus, it's completely obvious. The cow here is clearly a symbol of maternity. Utters recall the dripping breasts of Felicity, uh, mocking them for abandoning their maternal duties to die in the arena. Okay, so it's a mad cow because it matches these mad women. This must have been one really pissed off cow. Like, what did they do to it before putting it in the ring? I mean, like, I don't know, most cows I see are eating grass and chilling. Um, (laughs) But you you mentioned this a bit before, but some of the research you did suggests that the mad cow might be a reference to this Egyptian version of Ceres, uh, Hathor, who had a heifer's head. Um, So later, Christian iconography uses that animal hybrid thing that you were talking about before uh, for for describing the devil. So it might be, yeah, like this, um, this the, the Roman, either the writers or the, or the Roman executioners uh, had a sense of humor or piety or both. They can go together. Yeah, because we have other more clear references in the account of their martyrdom that have the women and men, these early Christians, dressed up in the costumes of various gods and goddesses. And so I think it makes sense to link the this iconography in this scene to Egyptian the Egyptian version of a Roman goddess with the heifer's head. Yeah. So something mm-hmm. something else we need to cover, especially after the gender bender dream of Perpetuas, is the treatment of their femininity 
in this narrative at the end. So the two women are stripped naked in the arena and they put on nets, like fish nets. I, I don't know what that looked like. But the crowd is freaked out because Perpetua's breasts make it obvious that she is lactating. You know, she's the mother of a newborn child. And so they have to be led out of the ring and given robes and then led back in. Yeah, it's so interesting how sensitive the audience and the organizers are about all this, considering they're fixing to kill these women anyway. But I guess the devil's in the details. Oh, wow. That is why we keep you around, this rapier wit. So speaking of details, let's not forget Perpetua's hair. (laughs) Hair is so important here. Okay, so in their scuffle with the cow, her hair falls out of place. But... You know, mind you, she's she's dying in the arena, but she stops to pin it up, not wanting to appear to be disheveled or in mourning before going to meet her celestial boyfriend. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, something really eerie about this part. It seems almost strangely realistic to me uh, because Perpetua, the way the, the narrator is describing it, it's almost as if it's the sort of out-of-body experience uh, she has to be convinced that she's being mauled by these animals by being shown the marks on her body because she's not experiencing the pain in real time. Um, and of course, like that's part of the ideology of the martyrology, which is to say that the people don't experience the pain because they're being like supercharged by the Holy Spirit. But it also seems like kind of a realistic trauma response, like dissociation. Uh, you know, it, it it's it's as if like people are like having that like I'm seeing yourself from the third person you know like or like you're playing a video game when you're having a really horrible thing happen to you so like that's it's it's just weird to me that like I'm not trying to give this naturalistic de <laughs> myth busting exclamation but that's like, it, those two things kind of seem compatible to me that you have a spirit that's supposed to be helping you through this traumatic moment and this idea that like in really traumatic moments people. Uh, stop experiencing their bodies and their pain in ways that are conventional. Um, but it takes a while for Perpetua to die. Uh, and um, it, ha- it takes, I guess, a centurion who has to deliver the, the death blow with a sword. But this dumbass, he's got one job in this thing and he messes it up. And she has to be, you know, the, the, the text has to make a point of how stoical, I'm using that term lo- like loosely, but how tough she is. She has to set the blade on the right part of her neck. I guess the implication being because he was so freaked out by what's going on. Um, but this is also the only time that she's described as reacting with pain to anything. And the text makes it seem as if that's like sort of a grace that she gets to, she gets to feel a little bit of the difficulty as the sort of culminating, uh, cherry on top of the, uh, you know, the best martyrdom experience possible. This is all super interesting. I just want to highlight a couple of things. One, that idea of wanting to experience the pain is of course, just to state the obvious here related to her wanting to be like Christ here, who experiences the pain of the passion. And so there's a tension between that kind of superhero vibe that we get where she's not supposed to feel anything. And indeed, there's evidence of that throughout the narrative. And then this one moment where she's seeking out the pain and seeking out the martyrdom, it must be a voluntary choice for her. That's also theologically super important. Um, And speaking of theologically super important, I also wanted to mention the hair moment um, and pull that out. Mm. Uh, I mentioned earlier that she didn't want to appear to be in mourning. And I just wanted to mention why. Because her own martyrdom is supposed to be a joyful event. You have to get your emotions right to be a martyr. Like the, (laughs) it's as much an affective position as it is, you know, 
like playing your part in the narrative, you got to have the right emotions to match it or it kind of doesn't count. And so to appear, you know, a woman with her hair down, that's one of the signs that she is in mourning in this culture. And so she's got to have it up. She's here for a joyful event. She's getting born into the kingdom of heaven. This is her, this is her glory, right? And so that's, a super interesting moment for that reason as well. Although I appreciate the other readings that you've put out, put out here. Okay. So she has, she's guided the sword to her own throat, showing her own, you know, composure, her own willingness to die. Is this indeed how the martyrs quote trod on the head of the serpent and beat the devil? And how do we make sense of that? Yeah, no, I think that's like sort of the big question, right? And it's weird because Perpetua has that vision and it's like the last time you get in her words mm-hmm. and she's like, we're not fighting animals, we're fighting the devil. Then you get to the last part and they're fighting animals. Yes, yes. So you're like, okay, <laughs> it's like, okay. Um, but so I guess we're supposed to understand that in this broader sense that the animals aren't the agents, you know, the animals are just these tools of this uh, demonic empire, which is killing these people who are getting the chance to testify. That's what martyr means. It means to testify in Greek. Um, and uh, so, yeah, the devil is not in the animals. The devil is the whole system that is putting them through this. Um, so that's, I think, one thing. You're talk- talking about the putting the hair back up and the joyful occasion. It reminded me of like the almost getting ready for a wedding, you know, anticipating this sort of bride chamber sort of uh, imagery. Um, and I was thinking about like, I have like a sort of string of like scriptural associations with this, like with the wedding at Cana where the water is turned into wine and sort of wine and blood sort of go together a lot in this imagery. And so we have this sort of uh, this sort of flowing blood, which is referred to as a second baptism in the, the martyrdom text. So like the bleeding out is another way of being cleansed and purified. Um, but it's also associated with this kind of uh, a joyful, ecstatic um, occasion. Yeah. So that was one of the things I, that's what I, I, I took out of that. I also wanted to talk about this idea of how do we think about gender in the work of this editor or redactor and this final scene there's one moment that was very close to the same spot where she's pinning her hair back up and that's when her she falls on her i think in my translation it was her groin or something like it's not possible to fall that like what are you i don't even know what they mean um but she exposes her leg or something. Um, and then she has to fix her clothes too. And it says that Mm -hmm. she's more mindful of her modesty than her suffering or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. and that strikes me as a particularly gendered moment in which we're saying, okay, there's a style to quote unquote feminine martyrdom. And it has to be this, this attention to the body and not becoming a spectacle, which of course is really funny because this whole text is feeding off of the spectacle at the same time that it's shunning it, we're also reading these salacious details. And I think that's mm-hmm. part of the reason why these stories survive. They're entertaining in a certain way. And part of that is this idea of exposure. Um, it's like it's like a slasher movie. We talked about horror movies yeah. a while ago, but like, uh, so it's like the salaciousness, uh, you know, the final girl sort of thing where it's like, you know, who's, who's the last person to get tracked down by the murderer, yeah. um, the devil. Um, and it, in the final paragraph is talking about just like how impressed the crowd is by like the, the fountains of blood that is this spilling out. And it kind of reminds me of the question of the Egyptian um, to sort of throw in another 
crazy. This is this is how Christian uh, biblical interpretation works, though. But you sort of make all these, you change these, these associations together. <laughs> but like the 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 Red Sea crashing down on Pharaoh's troops and and drowning them, um, the the sort of the passion and the the bloody death of the martyrs is this way of drowning the devil or drowning Pharaoh's troops. Um, so like, there's just so much that they can play with in terms of using those images to, uh, connote these other, um, sort of paradigms in scripture. I also wanted to talk about the devil as an instigator here. I think that's an interesting role. So the devil is the one who prepared the, the heifer for her, right. Or for the, for the women, perpetual infelicity. Um, and to me, that suggests both a kind of diabolical gender joke. It's the devil who's Mm -hmm. matching the heifer to these women. And there's Mm -hmm. something nefarious in that, like, heightened sense of, uh, it's kind of a strict gender role. So I suppose this is turning into some sort of weird second wave, uh, reading, but fine. Um, so that's the thing I wanted to point it out. And this also this idea that the devil is, that you mentioned, that the devil is kind of the system behind uh, what's making all of this happen, that's setting the wheels in motion. And to me, that does suggest that Rome is itself the devil in this story. It's this necessity to worship the emperor. It's the context of early Christianity within an empire that's persecuting it which at the same time is, of course, the occasion for martyrdom itself for this act of witnessing. So it's this terrible circumstance. It's this, it's this diabolical sort of scheme, scheming that is, that's, that is Rome. Uh, but it's also this chance to imitate Christ in this very kind of literal bloody way um, to get your second baptism. Right again. Here again, the the devil is the forces of evil, but also a convenient uh, prop for uh, glorifying God. Exactly, as as is always the case in this Orthodox uh, Christian stuff. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think Klaus, unless you have any final reflections, I think it's time for us to wrap this one up. Yeah, I think next time uh, Tertullian. That sounds right. Staying to me. in Nor- staying in North Africa. Yeah. yeah so um, yeah. Sounds good. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.